This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome back to the MDT. I am Dr Joe Preston. I'm a consultant geriatrician in London. And I am Dr. Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician at East Surrey Hospital. And today we're going to talk through the subject of constipation. We are. Uh, we've had several faculty members help us to prepare this episode. We've had Claire Watson and Wendy Grosner, who are both nurses, and Gagandeep Singh Alg, who is a geriatric registrar. And here with us again, we have... I'm Marie Domali. I'm a pharmacist. I'm from Brighton. And this week we're going to talk through a little bit about understanding normal gut physiology in older people, a little bit about some of the causes of constipation in older people, how to take a history, and then sort of how to go about managing constipation. Because mm. we do this all the time, don't we? But I think sometimes it's so common that quite often people don't really think about it. They're going to yeah. autopilot and don't really think about it enough. It's something that's really common in our population. So it's really important to understand well so that you can know how to approach it and how to manage it well to actually cure it for them. So the thing that I saw that I thought was quite interesting was the Royal College of Emergency Medicine put out their top 10 priorities for research. Um, it's quite interesting the things that they've picked. Uh, so a couple are to do with trauma, which you would expect, something they see all the time, one to do with sepsis. But the rest of them are actually about older adults and palliative care in the ED. So that would be really interesting. One was about reducing the harms in emergency department from crowding and exit block moving further into the hospital, particularly for the seriously ill, the injured, adolescents and for the frail elderly. Uh, they also ask, is a traditional ED the best place to care for frail elderly patients? Would a dedicated service for these patients be better? So this could be a geriatric ED or a liaison services into mm -hmm, ED. Mm -hmm. Given this population is expanding, should our services now actually be tailored towards this group? That's one question. Another question about how they achieve excellence in delivering end-of-life care in the ED was really nice. I mean, there's a whole question there about planning end of life and whether or not ED is the place that this should happen. And I think hopefully, you know, if we plan things far enough in advance, we should have less people dying in the ED. But there is, it's all, you know, it, it will happen with trauma and severe mm. sepsis and things that are not necessarily always predictable. Mm. Um, and it's yeah. a really important area, isn't it? Feelings back to some of the things we've been talking about before, which is like advanced care plans and things like that, if you turn up to A&E in emergency, it's very difficult to know. So actually yeah. those pathways, there are bigger questions here. So I thought that was really nice. They're quite open things, not the sort of things you really think about. Well, we think about with A&E, but it's nice to see that the college is thinking about those yeah. things too. And I saw something really interesting, and it was actually by, um, it's kind of like a quote from Professor Ken Rockwood, and it was said in 2005, and it said that, if we design services for people with only one thing wrong at once, but people with many things wrong turn up, the fault is not with the users, but with the service. Yet all too often, these problems are labelled as inappropriate and presented as a problem. Mm. I thought it was interesting that that was said now 12 years ago, unbelievably. But, you know, we're still still facing the same issues. And actually, you know, it just goes to show, actually, yes, people shouldn't be dying in ED. But when they do, you know, it's not necessarily the fault of the person but actually the fault of the system. Absolutely. And the thing that I found was from a tweet from Kimberly Cox, who is ah. a friend of the show. And this was about, it was a report from the Mindfulness All-Party Parliamentary Group. 
Nice. It actually came you back in October existed. 2015. Exactly, I didn't. And it was called uh, The Mindful Nation UK. It was quite a good read. And really just sort of saying that, you know, in recent years, there's been a, a huge expansion in interest in mindfulness and what that is and, mm-hmm. and sort of how we can integrate that into some of the, our other services. And, and really just the aim of their report was just to widen interest in using mindfulness in different ways. Uh, and sort of research, researching some of that use. But it was, it was just really nice to hear it mm. out there. Yeah. I think that's um, something that we, you know, sometimes we forget about, not not just for our patients, really, but for, for us and our staff and, and the rest of the team. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think mindfulness is, is one of these things that actually a lot of people will have a negative opinion of, kind of in the first kind of instance, because they think, oh, you know, I'm not going to meditate. Mm. But actually, you know, in Brighton, I know that they have kind of weekly sessions or, you know, sessions run in the chapel and things. And I think it's really important that us, that, you know, people on the front line are taking that time out to really kind of just stop and yeah. contemplate and mm. understand what's happening on a I day-to-day basis. Especially as things are getting busier and busier, you know, and, and people are getting less and less time to, yeah. to unwind and, and de-stress. Absolutely. Yeah. To make sure we're taking care of ourselves and do our jobs. Cool. So again, if you've got anything that you know, you've spotted and you'd like us to see and read about and talk about, let us know. And we can be found at MDT underscore podcast. On facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. Or via our website, which is www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk. And there's a little button you can click on that to uh, send us a message. Okay, so moving along, we're talking about constipation. As with most of our episodes, we're going to take this back to the shop floor to start with. Or if you've sent us one. You may be you may be in. I'm a staff nurse on Udigate Ward, so we deal with elderly patients and we see a lot of constipation due to uh, the medication that we give them because they are mostly opioids or a morph. The fact that they are not mobile, so immobility is a, is a, is a great issue. And diet as well, because most of our patients don't really have that good of an appetite. So we find that the effects of, of constipation on, on them is mostly they're not able to eat because they feel nauseous if they are very constipated. Um, and uh, some of them are not able to verbalize that, so they get very agitated most of the time. Um, so it's really important for us as nurses to sort of recognize the, the signs that they might be constipated. And obviously we monitor them by making sure we fill in the stool chart on a daily basis, even if the bowels are not open, so that we have an idea or we know exactly when the patient has had their bowels open. All right, so starting with the definition, which is what we usually do. This was the hardest definition I think I've had to do while writing these scripts, because constipation is not a disease entity in itself. And actually the clinical and research literature and patients often have different definition of what is constipation. And there are sort of three components to all those things. One is about the frequency of passing motions. And kind of the accepted thing seems to be about passing stool less than once every three days. Although everybody's different. Everybody's different. And this is why it's so tricky. The second bit is about consistency and sort of hardness or softness of the stool. And the third bit, um, and we'll talk about this a bit more later, is about difficulty. That's initiating evacuation or feeling like you haven't really been able to empty your bowels properly. Yeah. What, what is really clear is that constipation is much commoner mm. in older people than younger people. Mm. One of the things that um, is clear is it's quite subjective. There was a study of over 500 people in general practice and they found that 50% of them uh, gave a different 
definition of constipations compared to the GPs. And I said, either way, it's much more common in older people. And it occurs in about 10 to 15% of adults in developed countries. Mm -hmm. It's twice as frequent in women than men. And some of that might link into some stuff we'll talk about a little bit later on about pelvic floor musculature. Mm -hmm. It's very prevalent in um, people living in institutional care. So in care homes, it could be about 50% of people living there. Um, and there was a survey of community dwelling older adults, so up to age 93, included in this one, um, found a prevalence of chronic constipation of 24%. It's high, isn't it? Yeah. And I find that to be the most interesting point, actually, because you imagine in a care home, rest home um, environment where you're getting regular meals, um, you have regular kind of medical input, you have people administering medications. Actually, you would you would expect the levels of constipation to be a lot less yeah. than you know perhaps older adults in the community on their own. Yeah, it with, doesn't necessarily correlate absolutely that way around, does it? Yeah. And interestingly, most constipation is what, what's termed functional in nature. Mm-hmm. There's a relatively small amount of constipation that is pathological, so caused by you know, a malignancy or something. Um, and the rest is, is probably iatrogenic, caused by drugs. Um, so functional is a term I really hate. We've talked about this before. Yes. <laughs> it makes it sound like you're making it up. Though, isn't it? Yeah. But it does mean um, that it's symptoms or problems that have no underlying anatomical abnormalities. Um, but the normal function of the organ has changed yeah, or is impacted. And functional bowel disorders, including constipation, are diagnosed primarily through the patient's reporting of symptoms, which is why it's really important to what we were just saying mm. about sort of trying to understand what it is that your patients mean when they talk about it. Mm. The, the, the thing that people know about the most is the Bristol stool chart, isn't it? Yeah. But that's not actually going to be that helpful. If you go back to those three things, it just tells you about the consistency of the stool. Yes, and that's exactly. It. If you don't know what that is, and I'm sure you do, but if you don't, there's a cake that someone in Brighton made. It's epic. It's demonstrating um, in different forms of chocolate, the different consistencies. And you can make that cake as well if you want to mm. teach other people. So a better or a more useful criteria, the Rome 3 criteria, was developed in 1989. Yeah. I don't what, really know it? much about this. Uh, ah. Well, I've done a little bit of reading about this. Yeah. So, um, so since 1989, it wasn't developed in 1989, since 1989, oh. an international panel of experts has met four times. The kind of fact that Ian loves, <laughs> yes. can you tell? And have issued recommendations <laughs> on the diagnosis and management of functional bowel disorders, so including irritable bowel and also constipation. Mm-hmm. And these were known, they met in Rome, Rome 1, Rome 2 and Rome 3. I don't know what they did in the fourth time. Um, Or in Rome 1 or 2. We're unclear. If you know, let us know. Yes. But the Rome 3 criteria talk about, for constipation, the presence of two or more of the following symptoms. And I think this is a useful thing to bear in mind when taking history from the patients. Um, The first bit is about straining during at least a quarter of the times that somebody passes stool. Mm. Lumpy or hard stools in at least a quarter of going to the toilet. Yep. Uh, a sensation of incomplete evacuation in that same thing a quarter of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, a sensation of anorectal obstruction or blockage in at least one in four of your defecations. Yeah, and needing to do manual manoeuvres to help. And fewer than three bowel movements a week. Yeah, and so that's the, it's a useful thing, I think, that's sort of as guide as the sort of questions yeah, to ask a, people. It's a little bit more practical, isn't it? I think actually. it is, yeah. Um, we'll put the link to that in the show notes. So next we're going to talk a bit about the physiology of the bowel. So we're going to have our first nerd alert of this series. Can you hear it? All right. Go. So the digestive tract goes from the mouth to the anus. 
and it's a mixture of endocrine and metabolic systems. And it's the activity in the proximal colon that determines the consistency and volume of the delivery of contents to the rectum. So the rectum is like a reservoir. It just passively fills, and the body is able to exquisitely, sensitively work out what what it's filled with, whether or Mm. not it's air, whether or not it's um, stool, whether or not it's loose stool or quite what. Labelled gut brain sometimes. There's sure a number of uh, neurons and messages that are being interpreted there to work out exactly what is there and what needs to be done about it. And there's huge amounts of splanchnic nerves that and enteric nerves that feed that information back to the brain mm-hmm. and uh, back into the, the gut that modulate this whole system. There's something called the mass movement complex, isn't there, which is this sort of rhythmical wave of contraction moving through the bowel. Mm. And to maintain continence, you have to have an intact internal anal sphincter, which is an external one as well. And GI motility is interesting because... What you would intuitively think and what I intuitively thought is that as we get older, the transit time, so the length of time from when you eat something to when you pass stools, increases. But it doesn't. It's really, it's generally not changed in the elderly people that they've tested it on. Mm. It does seem to be very sensitive to thyroid hormone status. So if you are have hypothyroidism or subclinical hypothyroidism, perhaps, then your gut transit time can increase. But that will be a pathological state, not a functional condition, which is what we're talking about here uh, with constipation. So generally, your gut transit time doesn't change. Mm. And I think that's one of the most common misconceptions, actually. Yeah. Um, because I was, I was under the impression that's what that I thought. it slowed yeah. down. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there are some other changes. So you get age-related neurodegenerative changes in the enteric nervous system. So that might be what some of the functional changes that we see are in older adults. Um, so the colons of, of people over the age of 65, there's about 37% loss of the neurons compared to young adults. And then you also get changes in sort of mechanical changes, so muscle tone. Um, and that's probably where most of the problems that elderly people suffer when they're actually trying to evacuate stools come from. And that's where the, the rectal wall loses some of its elasticity. And you get a change in the rectal pressure that's needed to produce the sensation that you need to go. Mm. And the squeezing pressure uh, of the rectum declines with age, particularly in postmenopausal women. So there is a thought of whether or not it's tied, well, it is tied into pelvic floor muscle strength, but whether or not it's tied into oestrogen or not. That's our nerd alert over. We'll put a link. If you want to know more about that, uh, there is a nice article that we're going to put up um, in the show notes so you can read a little bit more. So, making a diagnosis of constipation. So we've talked about the criteria that you might be able to use, but really you're relying on patients to self-report that their defecation is unsatisfactory for them um, or for you to recognise that for them. So if they're an inpatient or if they're in a nursing home, that if they're not able to report that, that you're able to recognise that on their behalf. So care homes are likely to know what is normal for that person uh, that's living um, in the care home. Hospital staff is a little bit harder, um, so again, pardon <laughs> not intended, um, but just because they've not met the person, but that's why starting a stool chart really early on in the admission is quite important um, so that you can get an idea, you know, a couple of days into the admission, um, what is going on. And it's part of the routine clerking of patients to ask about their bowel habit, both for uh, medical staff, mm. but also the nursing staff when they admit somebody uh, onto the wards. And so we that information we, we should have around ready for people to see because it's so important. 
but I think also it's really important is, you know, with home dwelling elderly patients, quite often their visits and their um, interactions with medical professions are in a 10 or a 20 minute GP appointment, Mm. at which point it's their most acute issue that they will talk about. Um, And constipation, if it's something that they've had for a period of time, might not always be the first thing that they'll speak about. So I think for anybody doing home visits with patients, anybody who's having as a medical professional contact with the patient, just asking them about Mm. their urine and their bowel habits um, because they and also there's the embarrassment factor that quite Mm. often, you know, yes, they they may not volunteer that information. Yeah. And I think so we need a detailed history Um, and there is some data, as we said, that uh, older patients perceive constipation as straining rather than a change in frequency. Mm. Um, so you have to be quite specific yet open about what you're asking people not just saying do you have constipation and then once you've sort of elicited that it's useful just to think about well what is the primary complaint mm. is it stool hardness which might point you towards a dehydration cause is it the actual act of defecation which might point you towards a muscular cause or um, loss of muscle strength such as in frailty mm. or a neurological cause and then that, I think, from there then leads on to further bits of history you may get, but also then your management. Yeah. And one thing she wants to do is have a look at their medications. So are there any medications that might be causing it? Is there anything that affects transit time? So painkillers might do that, so opioids and codeine. Are they on any antispasmodics, um, any anticholinergics? And the second thing is, is medications that cause water loss, mm. such as diuretics or some of the other antihypertensives. And but I think it's really important, you know, that, to identify the cause, but actually understand that, you know, given our last week's episode on multimorbidity, actually there's a big focus on cutting down analgesics, cutting down anticholinergics, you know, obviously cutting down diuretics in older patients. Just thinking about the consequences of that, that actually if that's what's become their normal, and yeah. then as a result of stopping it, what may happen yeah. as a result of stopping If they're those, co-prescribed absolutely. Um, laxatives, yeah. absolutely. you might want to come back on that as well, yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the medications later when we talk about what you might use to manage constipation. We're going to talk a little bit next about the impact of constipation. There are quite a few complications, so you can get urinary retention. Yep, So very you, common. Yeah. I, mean, I see all the time following surgery, mm. um, urinary retention associated with constipation. Yeah, and that's because the loaded rectum puts a bit of pressure on the urethra, um, so it becomes a kind of bladder outflow obstruction. Um, also, the position that people are in bed, particularly if they're constipated um, and bed-bound, then, then that can lead to that even more. Overflow diarrhoea, so getting that history is really, really key because if that you've got a history of constipation and then they're having really, really loose stools, it might be that actually only the loose, watery bits are now coming around the really hard um, stool so that's why hist- history is absolutely key there and doing a rectal examination and sometimes even abdo x-ray to um, evaluate that and establish what's going on is really important and you can get bowel obstruction mm. which may require surgical intervention mm-hmm. in some situations very um, rarely bowel perforation yeah. this get quite bad before that happens but it's possible and it tends to be if that happens is when you've got fecal impaction yeah. when everything's just not moving at all yeah. and then you need to really carefully think about how you're going to manage the patient yeah. and what laxatives you're going to use and how you're going to deliver them and such like. Yeah. So we said it's really common. It's something that 
roughly one in four older adults living at home um, lives with. So it does beg the question then sometimes when you have something that's as prevalent as that, well, does it matter? Does it actually affect people's life? But it does seem to have quite an impact on people's quality of life. So it's not to be dismissed as just one of those things. Um, It can be accompanied by quite a marked impairment in reported quality of life and their social functioning as well. So in patients with chronic constipation, they can have really quite marked effects on their daily life. The 44% re- report a change in their mood. Uh, 37% reported a change in their mobility. Just over half reported a reduction in enjoyment in their life and ability to uh, maintain a normal work and normal recreation activities. Mm. One study showed that the impact of chronic constipation on quality of life for people with it was comparable of that for conditions like COPD, diabetes and depression. Yeah, and then there's a huge financial cost as well. Mm. Um, so just looking at Northern Ireland, just for the 12 months up until June 2016, there were 700,000 prescriptions for laxatives and for other agents to treat constipation at a cost of nearly £4 million. Um, and that's just in one relatively mm. small sector of our huge health economy. So it, it has a, a huge yeah. personal and societal cost. Yeah. So that moves us on nicely to the treatments and this is split mainly into two areas. One is non-pharmacological, so Maraid will fall asleep for a bit, (laughs) and pharmacological where she'll come back to life. So we're going to start with non-pharmacological. Dietary fibre, I think it's something that we all know about. So decrease in portion size of food and dietary fibre can lead to reduced motility. And the British Nutrition Foundation recommend that people have about 18 grams a day of fibre. Um, in the UK, the average is usually around 12 grams. Yeah. Um, but actually, one study showed that actually to counteract, you should probably be looking at about 30 to 40 grams of fibre a day. Yeah. Fibre is contained within things like bran, bran bread. Fruit with skins, with skins on. on. Yeah. And vegetables. And I think that's really important for patients who may have swallowing difficulties. Um, because actually, you know, if we're thinking about care home residents mm. or nursing home residents quite often... They have to have mashed or pureed diets and actually they may be getting a proportion of fruit, but they don't have the skins and the fibre associated with that. Mm. And fruit also contains sorbitol, which is a naturally occurring sugar that's not digested very well. And so it draws water into the gut and so has an active sort of softening effect on the stools. In effect, it works a bit like a natural osmotic laxative. Which we're going to talk about. Which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. Um, And... Fruits that have particularly high sorbitol contents are apples, apricots, gooseberries, grapes. And raisins. Raisins, yeah. Peaches, plums, prunes, prunes. prunes. <laughs> Raspberries. Yeah, and strawberries. Uh, but it's higher in dried fruit. So dried fruit may have a more of a sort of helpful effect than, than fresh fruit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. Sorry, <laughs> this. Again, going back to basics, you need to have lots of fluid. So making sure that their uh, oral fluid intake is good to maintain the bowel contents and also normal transit time. Uh, maintain the mobility. So immobility can reduce muscle tone in the bowel and the abdominal walls leading to constipation. And then the toileting conditions, mm. thinking about the privacy that somebody has, how long people are having to wait before going. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're waiting for you to finish up with somebody else and then just got that one thing to do that's only going to take a couple of seconds to that person that's waiting to go that that may be the difference Mm. between them feeling like they can go and then sort of the the urge in the moment passing i think it's really important that if people are able to transfer out of bed at all they should be taken to the toilet rather than the commode yeah 
I think that's what we'd all want for ourselves. So that's what we should try and provide for people. If they can get out onto the commode, they can probably get out onto the toilet. And then uh, one of the things that our faculty talked about, uh, which I think is really, really important, is about thinking about the timing of somebody's package of care if they're in the community. Yeah, absolutely. And trying to fit that around their sort of natural bowel yeah, habits. If their mobility is quite poor and they need assistance to go, then actually that's a really important thing. One of the other things with toilet conditions is the position that you should be in for optimal uh, going to the toilet. So the, the most natural way to go would be to actually squat down, which we don't do anymore and toilets don't facilitate. Uh, so there's this really quite funny video um, for a thing called a squatty potty. We've known about this video for quite a while. We have. We've, we've been, been waiting for a time. Sort of put this in for a while. And it's great. Uh, we will put a link to it. It's got um, unicorns and rainbows. I mean, what else do you need to know? Um, and essentially what it does is it's just a, a stool that sits around the um, toilet and it puts your, so you put your feet on it while you're going to the toilet. So you're in a more natural position. So your, your knees, knees are, are higher. Hips. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's it. And then you just put it away when you're not using it. Um, and that just is a simple way to make it easier. And anatomically, it makes it easier for people to go to the toilet. And I think that's also, I find this episode very interesting. Um, There's also an interesting point in toilet razors in patients' own homes. Because I think actually with mobility issues, quite often raising the toilet, you're actually putting them into a a less favourable position for a more natural motion. And that's exactly why bedpans are like the worst thing in hospital. And I think the the last sort of non-pharmacological thing that we can use is making use of the gastrocolic reflex. Mm -hmm. Which is when you eat... And then that stimulates your gut and then you need to go to the toilet. They're trying to make it more natural. So if someone is having constipation or they have reduced mobility, difficulty getting to the toilet, is that you offer kind of soon after a meal to kind of make use of that. And this is again where packages of care are difficult Absolutely. because you get a 15 minute call <laughs> to give your meal. Lunch, usually, but actually yeah. nobody considers, you know, the helping and assisting to go yeah. to the bathroom. You need a longer yeah. care Absolutely. package. That. And that's something that's often very, very useful in patients who've got dementia about trying to establish a, a normal pattern. Yeah, it's also yeah. people useful in people who've got faecal incontinence, and again, trying to establish a normal pattern of bowel movement. Yeah. So now we're into the drugs. I'm awake. <laughs> <laughs> first, so we're splitting this up into the different types of laxatives. The first section is on bulk-forming laxatives, so things like fibrogel. And what they do is they increase the bulk of stools by enabling fluid to be retained within the faeces and therefore increasing the mass of the faeces, which helps with the peristalsis. Mm -hmm. In order for them to work, you've got to have the water there to come across. So you've got to be well hydrated. Otherwise, what you're going to do is, well, it's just not going to work. Mm. And also, they are a liquid, so it's ispigella husk, it's orange flavour. You can also get an original flavour. But, you know, you have to assume that if somebody is, and older people are dehydrated anyway, which is a cause of their constipation, giving them a liquid to drink requiring, you know, a volume, the compliance with them are quite bad. I find the same with Movicol. If someone has poor oral intake and constipation, I don't use that because if I want them to drink anything, I want them to have some water. So you so say you need to be careful with people who are frailer. They're not really suitable for people taking opioids. They can be quite useful, I found, with people who have a faecal incontinence and it's fairly loose. Uh, you also have to be aware of there's a risk of, if you solidify things up, that there's a slight risk of causing bowel obstruction if things become too solid. But actually that can be enough sometimes um, to make it a bit more solid for them to maintain normal continence. So that's, that's a way that you can use it. 
So the second category is the osmotic lactulose. What laxatives. do you think of that? Rosemary. So those are oh. things like lactulose, phosphor enemas, uh, macrogels. They are probably the most prescribed mm-hmm. and the most... I removed 23 boxes of in-date laxido <laughs> from somebody's house at one point. Um, and this goes back to the point of, you know, actually, if it involves a liquid, you know, you're right, Joe, you want them to be drinking mm. water and encouraging that as opposed to a sugary thing, you're, you know, with 125 mils. Lactulose is horrible. It's really sweet. Patients genuinely don't like it, although it's like a little shot. They don't mm. like it. Um, causes bloating, doesn't it? And yeah, colicky it causes symptoms bloating. Sometimes. The compliance to them are, are really, really bad. Mm. Apparently it's really good for killing ants. Or laxido. Or lactulose. Or lactulose. Mm. Oh, I've never tried. Yeah. Have you ever spilled any on your hands? No. Oh, it's like a nightmare to try and get off. It's really? It's sticky. If they stick on a drug chart and they're all sticking together, it's horrible. So they make the stool easier to pass by, again, increasing the amount of water within the bowels. Mm. They don't bulk it up. They just make the stool softer. So as we were saying, the volume can be difficult to drink sometimes. Um, Quite good in people who have uh, relatively well, Mm -hmm. who have chronic constipation and are Mm -hmm. able to drink. And someone I've used it sometimes for people that have been admitted as a result of the constipation. If they're relatively well, you can give quite a lot of um, macrogols with a large volume of water and it works. Yeah. Quite nice, yes. and it's you can not use it for disimpaction sort of regime, can't you? Yeah. Movicol. I've never seen Movicol not work. You just have to give enough, but they have to be able to tolerate that. Yeah, so, yeah. and they, there is definitely a place for them. And I think you're right for those really well ones that it's chronic, um, a chronic issue. You know, they do work really well. They're you know they're they're not too aggressive, and you know if patients like them and can tolerate them, they're really nice. Yeah. But I just I find genuine generally the compliance to be. They'll use them for a little while and then they'll stop. Yeah. Then our third group? Uh, the stimulant groups, mm-hmm. so things like bicycodal and senna. And they work on nerves that control the muscles lining the digestive tract to try and help the mm. throughput. And senna is just short-term licence only. It is, uh, but it's yeah. used long-term. Chronically. And actually, yeah. compliance to it is really good. People genuinely don't mind using senna all the mm. time. Um, again, it's not too powerful. Bicycodal is quite a lot more aggressive um, so Senna's really well tolerated. People like it. It's you know they take it in their blister pack at night, and it just becomes a normal routine. But yeah, it's ideally for short term use only. Yeah. Sometimes it causes a bit of um, colicky pain because it's causing the the, the bowel mm. to squeeze a bit more. And yeah. If they are very constipated, that can hurt sometimes. And it causes it to squeeze because it stimulates the nerves in the large bowel, mm. doesn't it? And then that causes the the muscles in the wall um, to squeeze harder than they usually would. Um, so pushes the stools along and out. Yeah. And it takes about 8 to 12 hours to yeah. kick in usually. So to take it at night and by the next morning it's it's there and it's it's fine. I think um, generally we tend to see Senna and like a, an osmotic laxative like Laxido mm. or Macrogol yeah. prescribed together. And it can be quite aggressive to start off with and that's where you're getting your colicky pains. Mm. And I think, you know, for kind of immediate issues with constipation, certainly if it's causing an inpatient stay, yeah, it might be necessary, but people just, you need to yeah. go a little bit exactly. slowly yeah. with yeah. them. And Senna is quite good for when everything's yeah. done. Yeah. And bicycodal also comes in suppositories, which it work does. a bit quicker. Yeah. But you have to just remember that it's working on the bowel wall, so the suppository has to touch the bowel wall. Mm. Um, so you have to put it in the right place. Um, and long-term use of Senna um, can actually cause the bowel to slow down um, and become less active on its own. So that's that's 
why it's got a short license isn't it but we do see it being used yeah but we need to we need to be reviewing that and actually if somebody's been on it for longer than i don't know is it six or nine months actually they say that we should be taking away because it does slow down the gut transit time and then finally is the store softener laxatives so things like docosate that's a stimulant as well as a softener. It is, it is isn't it? It's yeah. got some stimulant activity yeah. too. We've got yeah. that in brackets written here. Oh. Marie hasn't got the script. That's how <laughs> clever she is. She knew it anyway. <laughs> an expert in all things. <laughs> so how do they work, Joe? Uh, so they kind of change the surface tension around so they make the stool more slippery um, so it's easier to come out. Um, so the surface of the stools becomes more permeable, water can be absorbed, and then that increases the fluid content of the hard stools. Yeah, that's yeah. how it works. And you can use that as a suppository as well, can't you? Yeah, well, you've got glycerin yeah. is, is effectively yeah. that. Um, and that's mostly sort of a hyperosmotic action. Mm. Uh, but it's got sodium stearate in it, which also causes some local irritation to the colon mm. and sort of stimulates the act of defecation. Well, so you have to put glycerin in, in to yes, the poo. Yes, because you want to soften not it. Not yeah. on the wall. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, what we've not talked about is phosphate enemas. Aren't they in osmotic? Which I think they come mm. under osmotics as well, yeah. don't they, with our with our lactulose and macrogirls and stuff. And again, I guess I'd just say be cautious in using phosphate enemas in older people. Um, they can lead to quite a bit of dehydration. Um, and particularly with the bowel prep, be cautious, very cautious in using that in older people, particularly a frailer older person who's at home. Mm. I'd be quite cautious of giving them a lot think, of prep at home. Yeah, you, you have to think, you give them an enema, if they're at home especially, how are they going to manage after that, all the bowel prep at home? Yeah. yeah. So I think we've talked through constipation. We've talked a little bit about the normal gut physiology. Mm-hmm. We've talked about some of the things that we should be asking patients when taking a history uh, for someone that's got constipation. And then we've talked through the different types of medications to help manage it. Mm-hmm. So if you've got anything you want to add on constipation please do let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at MDT underscore podcast. Or Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. Or through our website, which is www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk. Fantastic. The MDT Podcast. So now it's time for the MDT teaser. This is our catchily titled MDT item guessing game, where we're going to guess each other to guess an item that is written on our pieces of card mm. these have been supplied to us by Tappy who's a clinical fellow in technology enhanced learning that works with us so we've not seen these until just now we um, have 30 seconds to make each other guess what the word is this is an item that we would use regularly or encounter regularly and we have a list of words each that we're not allowed to use whilst describing this thing so Joe spectacularly won last time. Yeah, I did. Uh, so score of six seconds. Six seconds. So that, I suspect, will be the, the winning score at the end of the series. <laughs> um, shall I go first this time, then? You may. Okay. Ready? Time. Okay, so this is really hard. Uh, so this is a treatment for people who have often fallen over and broken something. An operation. Um, it's, no, it's not. Um, it's a treatment that they would swallow. It comes in a, a pill format. and it, It's not bisphosphonate, but it's related. Adcal. You have, you have to have... It's tied into Adcal. Um, Adcal Vitamin is, D. It is, yeah. 22.82 seconds. Ooh. So I wasn't allowed to use the words medicine, bones, sunlight, osteoporosis, osteomalacia, or fracture. Okay, my turn then. Mine's pretty tricky as well. I need to have words with Tappy. 
Hard. Right, ready? Right, yeah. Lots of people have these regularly. They can... They are often small white things. Medicines? Pills? Capsules? Mm. Painkillers? You're on the right lines. Um, Um. uh, You're on the right lines. (laughs) Um, um, Tablets? Yes. 32.22 seconds. That means it's one all. I know, but look, right, because the words I wasn't allowed to use were medicine, pill, drug, vitamins, swallow, take. I couldn't say take or oral. It's a tricky one. Mm, They're getting harder. And talking of getting harder, it's now your turn. And so this is the second. It's an elongation of the sound that you heard last time. uh, And we want you to let us know what you think this is. This is a sound that is related to stuff that you would do every day working in the MDT. So what do you think it is? Let us know at MDT underscore podcast and you can use the hashtag MDTeaser for the chance to win an MDT mug. So that brings us (laughs) to the end of this episode. And in two weeks time, we will be talking about non-pharmacological management of pain. MDT will reconvene in two weeks time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a hearing aid podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.